I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Congress loves to react to a problem, and um, the problem we are seeing is overdoses. Okay, who can we point the finger at? Congress reacts. Congress reacts to what the news reports. You know, using using the media, using social media, um, still a very important tool because um, if we stop having this conversation, that's the day that policymakers stop paying. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder, harm reduction, and recovery from addiction. Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now, the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. So, welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. I'm Sean Fogler, and today on the line, we have Andrew Kessler and Bill Kinkle. Um, we're really excited to have Andrew. Andrew uh, is, is an attorney, um, is also the founder and principal of Slingshot Solutions, a consulting firm that specializes in behavioral health policy. His clients, past and present, include the International Certification and Reciprocity Consortium, the California Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals, and Faces and Voices of Recovery. With 20 years of policy experience and over a decade in behavioral health, Andrew is a fixture in circles that advocate for substance abuse treatment, prevention, and research. He collaborates frequently with congressional offices, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and other federal actors. Kessler has written legislation and report language adopted by both the House and Senate Appropriations Committees and has presented orally before such bodies as the Scientific Management Review Board, the National Conference on Addictive Disorders, and the College on Problems of Drug Dependence. He received his Bachelor of Arts in 1993 from Washington University in St. Louis. In 1999, he graduated from American University's Washington College of Law, where he received multiple awards and recognition for his legal analysis and moot court arguments. He lives in Fairfax, Virginia with his wife and two children, and we are very excited to have him on today um, to discuss everything and anything about drug policy, mental health policy, and uh, and other other interesting topics. So welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, I thought before we get, or as we get started, um, you could tell us a little bit about your background and your path towards uh, behavioral health and drug policy. Um, many sure. of us who've gotten into that area um, have had interesting interesting paths towards it, and uh, and I'm sure yours is interesting. The little bit that I've read. <laughs> Um, it sounds interesting, so I thought our listeners could get kicked off with that. Okay, sure thing. It it, it is interesting because um, uh, there are you meet a lot of people in this in this space uh, with with varying backgrounds. Some of whom are in recovery themselves, and some of whom are not. Me, I got into this uh, more from the policy side than from the the recovery or the or the behavioral health side when I was. 
about 20 years ago, um, in, in one of my first policy jobs, uh, I was responsible for tracking, um, I, I was working for a, a psychological society, the American Psychological Society, which is now the Association of Psychological Science. And I, my portfolio was the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, National Institute on Mental Health, um, plus a few other institutes that, uh, that did behavioral health research. So it was all on the research side. So my first introduction to, to this wasn't really from a standpoint of, of treatment or prevention or anything clinical, but it was, it was neuroscience, uh, which, I, which I found fascinating. Always a, always a student of science. Um, and, uh, even the name of my company, Slingshot Solutions comes from a scientific, um, equation, uh, having to do with planetary orbit and physics conversation for another time. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit of a science. I'm, I'm just a science geek. I've always loved it. So I really found it fascinating. And before then I was like anybody else. I didn't know about the disease of addiction or alcoholism or, or, or substance use disorders. I, I, you know, like, like most other people thought that, uh, anyone who was, uh, part of that, uh, who, who, who suffered from that uh, condition was, a uh, a junkie. They chose it themselves. They, they couldn't get out of it. Uh, AA was the only answer. You know, I, I was your average know nothing. Um, and from there I went to work for, uh, an association on the clinical side. And so I started to merge those two areas of knowledge, uh, the neuroscience, knowledge of the disease, and then what it took um, to uh, to make that efficient at, at a clinical level. And since 2008, um, I've been with Slingshot Solutions, which I formed, representing strictly um, associations and, and, and providers having to do with uh, substance abuse and mental health services. So, so as as Roger said before, he listed a few of my clients. My work is entirely uh, revolves around um, federal programs and federal grants that go towards the both prevention, treatment, and recovery services. Um, most of it is on the substance abuse side of things, but when you work in substance abuse policy, mental health is. It's 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 they're very difficult to separate not only because of the co-occurring that we see in the population uh, uh, of the of of the two, but also it's it's a you know it's it's also a holdover from several decades ago when if you had a substance use disorder you were considered to be mentally ill. Uh, so going all the way back to the '60s, some of the policies we still have today go all the way back to the 60s when Medicare and Medicaid came on the scene and the only way to get reimbursed or, or treatment of any kind for substance use disorders was to go through the, me the mental health system. So um, that that's how I came into it. And I'd say the last five years have been... <laughs> Uh, have been like nothing we could have ever predicted. If you know, I remember working on this issue ten years ago, and it was, it took everything in us. And I, I don't work alone when it comes to. Uh, I may I may have my own practice, but there's a bunch of us who work on different aspects of this. I have friends who are who are and colleagues who focus on maybe uh, just 
medication-assisted treatment or who, who, who represent specific professionals like psychologists or addiction doctors or, you know, um, so we have a, a coalition, a team of us that work together. Uh, it's not nearly as big as a, a coalition that supports, say, something like cancer or cancer research, but we're growing. And over the last five years, uh, with the opioid epidemic, uh, it's given us a chance to bring attention to this issue that we never imagined we'd see. I'm on the record as saying I, I gave a, a talk in 2013, and I I said you're never going to find a politician who's going to come home to his home, his or her hometown, and say the issue I want to run on is addiction treatment. It's never going to happen. Um, lo and behold. <laughs> um, in 2016, during the Republican um, primaries in New Hampshire, every single candidate wanted to talk about this issue. There was roundtable after roundtable. And not only did they talk about this issue, they talked about their personal experiences with this issue, uh, whether that be Jeb Bush with his family members, Ted Cruz uh, and his family member. Um, Chris Christie in New Jersey was a, an absolute leader when he was in the State House, uh, and uh, his work continued for, for the White House um, when, when President Trump was elected. So, um, it was front and center. It was mentioned in the, um, state of the union by, by President Obama. Uh, so the last, I kind of see, like, I, I kind of remember two careers, one pre opioid epidemic and one post opioid epidemic. And, uh, they were very different in terms of the policies that we could um, advocate for and 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 be successful with. Did did you see it coming? Like like were there signs? I obviously now in hindsight you probably can look back and point yeah. to things, but as you were going through it, like were there or or was it subtle? Um, it was subtle. I could see it. I could see more attention coming in 2013, but believe it or not, it was because of marijuana. Not because of opioids. If you were to say to me in 2013, hey, your area of policy is about to take off on Capitol Hill and everyone's going to make this the number one healthcare topic, um, I would have said it would be marijuana because that's when Colorado and Washington were experimenting with their laws. More states were uh, thinking about it. You had the Cole memo. And we just thought, okay, for the next three years, here we go. Because what we witnessed in the past was this country is always, when it comes to policy, uh, loved. Uh, there's a phrase, I don't know, I, I use the phrase, others use it, 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 it the drug de jour. Uh, in, in the 80s, it was crack, mm -hmm. and all anyone cared about was the crack epidemic. And in the 90s, it was club drugs, MDMA, and ecstasy. And in the early 2000s, it was meth. And I remember being on Capitol Hill, working on methamphetamine issues, and it was all anyone talked about. Everyone said it's the worst thing we've ever encountered because it could be manufactured. It could be – it was spreading across the country. The cartels were getting into it. And we're like, oh, no, meth is – and then what did we do? We passed a piece of legislation that said you got to put the pseudofedrin behind the counter. Done and done. <laughs> done with meth. Well, we see, you know, those of us who, who worked on the, on the mm. issue were like, no, we're not done with meth. But that, that was the attitude of some policymakers. Flash forward a few years, and um, I saw the area of drug addiction possibly getting more attention. But like I said, it was, I thought it was always going to be through marijuana, and, which is a far different subject in terms of research, 
fatality, everything else than, than opioids. And we had started to see before 2013, we had started to see a lot of celebrities um, start to um, um, unfortunately overdose um, with prescription drugs. We saw, I believe, Brittany Murphy, uh, Heath Ledger. I'm not, I'm not quite exactly sure what um, what caused his overdose, but there were a lot of celebrities. And then for some reason, Philip Seymour Hoffman seemed to mm-hmm. push everything over the edge. And I don't know, I, I, maybe it was because they found him with the needle in his arm. Maybe it was because he was the, the every man actor who could play every role Academy award winner. Um, it's not like celebrities hadn't had this issue before, uh, but there's nothing like, and it's unfortunate, but there's nothing like a celebrity death to kick policymakers into high gear. You'll remember 1986 and Len Bias. Mm-hmm. No one really wanted to talk about cocaine until Len Bias. And then, oh, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. So um, that may have been, if, if you were to ask me to look back and say pinpoint it, that's when we started to sense um, things were starting to get big. And the other thing was, um, it was the overdoses. I mean, there is a difference between um, drug abuse and um, and an and overdose. Uh, right now, a lot of what we're seeing in terms of reaction, it's a reaction to overdoses. Um, when people start to die, phones ring off the hook in Congress. And that's really what started. And in areas we'd never seen before. I know it's a very, uh, it's been repeated quite often that this was not our reaction to the crack epidemic of the 80s. This was not our reaction to maybe, you know, other quote unquote epidemics. Um, and it was reaching areas it hadn't reached before. Um, but the, the irony is, if you were to say to anyone who worked in my field about prescription drug mm-hmm. abuse, more than five, six years ago, our conversation would go to benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, so, um, you know, because it's still, you know, very highly abused. And I don't know what the numbers say, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was even still more abused than, than opioids. Uh, benzodiazepines have been abused since, since they've been on the market. And always, we all knew that if you were to take all the illicit drugs of abuse and add them all up, it still wouldn't amount to the number of cases, a number of people who needed assistance for abuse of prescription drugs. So those of us who worked on the issue and and followed the research, we knew the prescription drugs were an issue. We just never could have imagined it would have blown up like this. And uh, we obviously know that Purdue and other drug companies, um, uh, you know, um, did what they did in a, unsavory manner to to, mm-hmm. to get along uh and they're hopefully paying the price now but uh i i guess it was just the the, the perfect storm and so mm-hmm. that's the answer of could we see it coming not we could see the trends in abuse but we never could have predicted the trends in overdose uh if you could i'm sure there's papers out there i can't read everything so <laughs> uh it is possible some people saw it coming we look back now and say see the numbers said it but um, if you were to tell me in the beginning of 2013, it's all going to change and it's going to be opioids, I, I mm-hmm. certainly did not, I did not see that coming. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's really multifactorial, right? Because, you know, you had the large pharmaceutical companies, you had the distributors like McKesson, you know, read articles about them, the FDA, JCO. I mean, we all like to point the finger and certainly the marketing was um, not really above board. Um, they knew it was dangerous. You know, these medications were dangerous and they were still marketed and sold the physicians as this is the answer and the pain is the fifth vital sign. So right. I know we, we've, you know, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, we like to point fingers, spending a tremendous amount of time, money and energy going after these large organizations and business and that they should be held accountable. But I think we're missing, you know, a big piece like, like that money and energy and time should be going into treatment and research and education and peer support and harm reduction. And we're so focused on blaming and pointing fingers. Yeah. I, th I think, I don't know, I think the pendulum has swung so far and we have these great ideas and, and policy is slowly changing, but are we really making progress? And, and the other thing I, I'm babbling here a bit, but, but we like to focus on reducing overdose deaths and getting people in treatment, which is important. Those are excellent goals. But what about recovery, right? What about the life after? Um, because getting, you know, a less death, getting into treatment, assuming it's evidence-based treatment and the right treatment for you is great. But my experience, me being in recovery, that is like the first step, right? It's everything after, okay, you're recovered. Well, how, you know, what are you going to do now? You know, yeah. do you have a purpose? Um, or do you have a connected life? Like, are you, if you have a criminal record, you know, how do you, you know, move, how do you move forward? And yeah. because if, if you can't, you know, I, I, I come from privilege and, and I'm lucky that I had the support I had and I'm educated and all these things. But I always say, like, if I didn't have these things, I, I'm not sure I'd be where I am today you know, and my recovery would be as strong. So, I mean, what, what do you, yeah, that's a lot. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that in reverse. You know, I, I, I process your question and everything you said, and I'm going to, going to kind of take it in reverse as we first, you know, talk about recovery. Um, the, um, when I first started working in this, in this area on the clinical side, the director of SAMHSA was a man named Charlie Curry, a uh, good friend of mine and, uh, and, and a mentor as well. And he had a saying called a life in the community for everyone, you know, uh, and he once got questioned on that. He said, what well, someone said, what does that mean? And he said, well, quite simply, a job, a home and a date on Saturday night. You know, that, that's all we're that's all we're asking for. Um, uh, but you have to get there first. And um, I know it's fiction, but uh, you've given me the opportunity to quote the, the greatest television show in history, The Wire. Uh, and there was a scene where one of the main characters who suffered from a, um, a heroin addiction was trying to turn his life around. And he was talking to someone who had done it and was complaining about how his sister won't let him visit and how he can't get a job. And uh, the, um, the, the person who had been through it said, so you got clean. Getting clean is the easy part. Then comes life. <laughs> it, it, it's and that's where recovery support services are so important obviously whether you have a criminal justice record whether you have 
um, the challenges of, of not having a home or a, or a job or a stable lifestyle. Yeah, we, that, that's really what's been missed when it comes to policy. Uh, regressing back further into your question, uh, Congress loves a victim or a uh, Congress loves and they love a bad guy. Uh, all politicians. Yep. <laughs> it makes it nice, a nice, easy narrative. And so we've got a lot of bad guys. We've got Purdue Pharma. We've got doctors who overprescribe. We've got distributors who overdistribute. We've got pharmacists who don't check. Um, we've got a ton of bad guys. And what we've completely, I don't want to say we've missed, but what's come last when it should come first is the disease of addiction. Um, so, you know, like with fentanyl, take that, for example, we're talking about, uh, lots of legislation to keep fentanyl out of our ports and, 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 and it's all very supply side based. That's a nice effort, but to me, the best way to prevent a fentanyl death is maybe to prevent the person from putting the needle in their arm in the first place and policies it even focus on evidence-based prevention. When I say prevention to the general public, you have to understand, I want to go back to something I said earlier. Um, Congress and policymakers don't change their mind unless the public changes their mind. Congress is a reflection of the public. Some people may not like to hear that, but I firmly believe it. What the people want, Congress does. When there is a problem to react to, Congress reacts to it, whether it's large or small. You remember the Ebola scare we had several years ago. People, the odds of contracting Ebola were Lord knows what, especially if you didn't work in a emergency room setting. And Congress invested $4.8 billion. Um, how many people died during the Ebola scare? I believe it was a total of four. I may be wrong. It may be five. How many were American? I believe it was one. So um, Congress loves to react to a problem. And um, the problem we are seeing is overdoses. Okay, who can we point the finger at? We point the finger at Purdue Pharma. And believe me, they deserve finger pointing. We pointed over prescribing. And believe me, we, we, you know, finger pointing is deserved. But the, um, you know, the narrative of, oh, I had shoulder surgery and I was prescribed oxy and I got hooked and then I went to heroin. While it may be true, um, many policymakers have portrayed that as the root of the problem. And I, based on the research and the data I see, that's not it. Um, if you look at effective prevention strategies, what you see is uh, working, with, working with trauma. That's always going to be the top you know, one of the top causes of, of, of addiction disorders. Um, I saw a data last week that said of people who suffer from an opioid addiction, over 50% have a problem with binge drinking. So you might want to point the finger at Purdue or Oxycontin or overprescribing, but then are you also going to point the finger at Anheuser-Busch or Miller or Coors? It's, you know, people have a, you know, People have substance use disorders, and that's what we've missed uh, when it comes to policymakers. And in terms of the investments that we want to make, um, a lot of investments go to naloxone, a lot of the money, federal money, which is great, life-saving. That's great. But um, what next? Uh, and the real struggle for – if we could talk 
policy for a minute, the real struggle we have is if you look at federal funding, naloxone is placed under prevention. Uh, no one gets that. Uh, so when they say, yeah, we're investing in prevention and it's really millions of dollars going to naloxone, the only thing naloxone prevents is, is death. It, it is not prevention by any definition that you or I would use at a, you know, at a, at a, at a level, at a community prevention level. Uh, so there's really still a great misunderstanding about how we address, how we phrase, uh, you know, the, the, the disease of addiction or other substance use disorders. Um, before, and I mentioned the drug du jour, before there was opioids, um, you know, if you were a, someone who, you know, was, um, was, was seeking out, uh, something to, you know, to, to self-medicate or whatever term you want to use, whether it was alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, tobacco, whatever it may be, um, it could be found. So this is really just another chapter in, you know, um, people finding a different way to, um, to deal with their issues of mental health, trauma, uh, and other, you know, yeah. other maladies that, that, that leads into it, that leads into substance use disorders. Yeah. I, I always say we have a crisis of addiction. We're so focused on opiates, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, look at alcoholism, look at the deaths from alcohol. They're, they're, yes. they're, they're, they're far more, um, you know, far greater than, yeah. than, than opioids. Absolutely. And, um, Arkham methamphetamine and cocaine are coming back and, we're always looking for something to um, numb ourselves, not deal with our emotions. And until we address that, you know, we can build walls, you know, and focus yeah. on substance. And I always say it's not about the drug. It's just a different flavor of ice cream. And it's not just drugs. It's behavior, no. right? Gambling and sex. And, I, believe um, it was, uh, I believe it was Dennis Miller who once said, if you took away every drug and every drink, there are still people who would hold their breath and run around in circles until they passed out. Yeah. <laughs> People will find a way. Yeah. That brings up another question. I mean, so from a policy standpoint, how, how do we change that? How do we, how do we start to change minds to move past just these initial things that are right in front of us now, but realize what's a couple steps down the line? Like, what can we do? When we saw the attention being paid to opioids, some of us got a little concerned and said, wait a minute, are we focusing on the wrong thing? Because we're focused on opioids and maybe we should be focused on substance use disorders. And um, many people, you know, on Capitol Hill, in the White House, both the, you know, Obama and and now Trump White Houses said, well, maybe this will be the... uh, uh, the spark plug. This will be the engine that drives the train. We can deal with those other things, but it has to come along, you know, with, uh, you know, opioids is the issue that we're going to, and kind of believed it, kind of didn't believe it. Here we are a few years later, and I'm not entirely sold. Some of the money that has left Washington has been for states to use any way they choose uh, on, you know, when it comes to quote unquote, addiction treatment, substance use disorders. Um, but um, a lot of it is still really opioid dedicated. Uh, and it's, um, you see it in certain legislation, you know, for example, uh, I'm going to take the CARE Act, which is a recent legislation introduced by 
uh, Senators Warren and Congressman Cummings. And this is the bill that is seeking to establish like a $100 billion over 10-year fund, something akin to maybe the Ryan, what Ryan White does for, for AIDS. Um, the money in there can be used if it ever, if it passes. I, I don't want to give your listeners the wrong idea. This legislation has simply been written down. It has not really even begun to move through Congress yet. Um, but conceptually, the money can be used for any and all substance use disorder um, purposes, including recovery. Um, uh, while I was working for Faces and Voices of Recovery, we, you know, were very adamant the language we put in there that uh, recovery be allowable use of these funds. Recovery community organizations get input into how the funds are spent. So on paper, it says this is how it can be spent, and it's pretty much a blank blank slate for uh, for all substance use disorders. However, the money is going to be allocated if the bill becomes law. The money will be allocated not just to states, but to localities and municipalities as well. And the formula for how that money will be distributed will be based on a locality's overdose rate. Now, let's say you're in Louisiana, in Shreveport, or you're in, um, you know, uh, Missouri, where methamphetamine is a much more popular drug than opioids. Um, can someone overdose or die from complications of methamphetamine? Yes, they can, but not nearly at the rate we see of fentanyl overdoses. So the money will be skewed towards areas of the country because of this formula that is, uh, is based on high overdose rates the money will be skewed to areas where opioid is the top problem. So you see what I'm saying? So it, while in terms of the language and the letter of the law, the <clears throat> money can be used for all substance use disorders, based on the math and the formula, it's going to end up more in the hands of areas and municipalities that have issues with opioids as opposed to, say, meth or, across the country, problem drinking. Um, I know there are areas that have greater problems than others, and we we call them shortage areas. Um, I kind of take umbrage with that term because I don't know a single community in the United States that has all the resources they need to deal with this issue. I think the entire country is a quote-unquote shortage area when it comes to number of professionals, providers, treatment slots, access to MAT, whatever. Some areas may have it harder than others, but um, you, you would have a hard time convincing me that um, there's a community somewhere that when someone has an issue, they can get right into treatment and, uh, and everything is going to be uh, smooth sailing. So <laughs> it's, it's interesting the, their formula for allocation of, of funds because usually when someone overdoses, they have more than one drug in their system, yes. right? And, and a lot of times they may be using cocaine or methamphetamine and that will, will be cut with an opiate, you know, usually fentanyl, um, and that can cause an overdose death. So it'll be interesting to see how they allocate those funds. Because, I mean, you know, we have a poly substance abuse problem. Like, oh, absolutely. Resources yeah. everywhere, of course. An area like, you know, Pennsylvania, a state like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, which have much higher rates, certainly need more funds, um, and others don't. Um, but yeah. access to those funds. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when you say funds, I mean, that, that's, that's such a loaded word because yeah. you, you go to Capitol Hill and they say, well, what are you going to spend that money on? And they say, well, treatment. Uh, that's also a pretty loaded term. It, it, it's it's what I see from Capitol Hill is a uh, even from our greatest allies uh, and they are on both sides of the aisle, you know. Um, some people say, oh, this is such a bipartisan issue. You could believe them if you want to believe them. I do. I see that. Uh, I know that if you watch the evening news, you're not going to believe there's much bipartisanship in Washington. But for every Democrat I can name that's been a champion on this issue, I can name a Republican that's worked with them and vice versa. Um, our, probably our greatest champion, uh, Hal Rogers of Kentucky, is a Republican. And you also have you know, uh, people like uh, Representative Clark of Massachusetts and uh, Representative Tonko of New York. Uh, you have Susan Brooks of Indiana. I mean, the, these people, you know, really have worked together. But what you don't see or what seems to be missing, and we keep coming back to this, is the words on the page say all the right things. But I still haven't seen in the attitudes of these lawmakers an acknowledgement that, wait a minute, for close to 100 years, policymakers ignored this issue. And we all know why. You call it stigma, you call it discrimination. No one wanted to deal with this population ever. Uh, you had a problem, you went to AA. If you could afford a private treatment center, who knows if they were up to, mm -hmm. up to you know, standards, you know. Um, no one wanted to deal with this. And now all of a sudden in 2013, along comes an opioid epidemic and they come to the professionals I represent and say, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Uh, well, gee, guys, <laughs> um, we'd love to. Uh, yeah, we have a tremendous workforce shortage, not just in rural areas, but in urban areas and suburban areas as well. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has said we would need an additional 20,000 uh, addiction counselors in the next five years to handle just the current workload. You have uh, a shortage of actual treatment centers. Uh, you have reimbursement rates from Medicaid that are laughable and would not even be considered, you know, uh, um, allowable by other health professionals. You know, they're, they're so low. Um, it's, we're really still stuck in a very old system of getting, getting the crumbs, you know, um, uh, why isn't substance abuse treatment and why aren't our professionals reimbursed at rates of other diseases? If everyone on Capitol Hill is saying, oh, it's a disease just like diabetes, it's a disease just like hypertension. Well, why don't you reimburse our professionals like it is? Why don't you train our professionals like it is? Why don't you, you know, um, and so there are loan repayment programs. There's a lot of recruitment efforts, but the key isn't recruitment. The key is retention. Average stay in the profession is three or four years. Uh, and you've probably seen that. Why? Low pay, intense workload, intense amounts of paperwork. Um, you know, we got left out when the ACA was written, behavioral health got left out of all of the, uh, all of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the goodies with electronic health records. And, you know, we're trying to come into a health system that's in the 21st century. And we really didn't, have even a 20th century of, of real health care for this disease. Uh, so it's really, um, I don't think lawmakers have fully grasped 
the perspective, and as a result, they failed to grasp what deep a hole we're in. You know, they keep saying, oh, well, we allocated a billion here and a billion there. Why aren't we seeing results? I don't think they have any idea how big, how far behind our, our, our you know, how much of a head start other diseases got. Yeah, and, and more money at the same strategies that are not working is not going to get us out. No. In the same system, right? The same with the same structural yeah. barriers that are that are there. That's a key sure. word: structural barriers. Absolutely, absolutely. And and believe it or not, as much as we talk about people being more accepting of the disease, um, the stigma we face is still is still tremendous, um, regardless of the political issue. It is. I, I really, um, if if you if you see me talk to other people or, or write about this, um, you know, um, I, and I was saying this five, six years ago, um, the HIV model of advocacy, of policy, is really kind of my, my, my guiding light. Um, I know that Ms. Warren is proud of her bill saying it's based on Ryan White. Um, the, and the reason, but it, it, it goes beyond just HIV as a disease. It goes to how it became part of our national conversation. Um, because you ask me, did I see this coming? And I go back to 2013. I want you to think back further, if you could remember the 80s. If I were to tell you, imagine we're having this conversation in 1983, and, I, and there's this disease no one really knows about, and its, it's pathology is perplexing everybody, and its epidemiology is, is, is almost untrackable. Um, and I were to say to you, hey, uh, there's a bunch of gay men in San Francisco, and not only are they going to change the national conversation on this, they're going to change the face of biomedical research forever. You would have me taken away, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> mental health. You would say it's never going to happen. But it did because of their activism. It changed the conversation, and it made people realize this is a disease that requires not only our attention when it comes to our community, but the entire nation and the entire planet. Um, and what happened with HIV research, it, it didn't just benefit us in ways of learning more about HIV treatment and, um, you know, and, 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 and maintaining a maintenance treatment and people now living, you know, for, for decades. Um, um, if Magic Johnson's press conference in 1991, you no one said he's going to be alive in, in 2019. It's, it was just this decades and decades of conversation about what needs to be done and how it could benefit an entire nation and planet. We need to have that same mindset because mm -hmm. it's not just about, like you said, polysubstance abuse. It brings with it hepatitis A, B, and C. It brings with it HIV. It brings with it endocarditis. It brings with it MRSA infections. It brings with it, you know, uh, any number of mental health disorders. Uh, uh, so as you see, I really don't even look at it as just substance use disorder policy. I'm kind of on a level of this is public health. And one day, the treatment of substance use disorders will be part of the public health system. That's really our ultimate goal. I don't think our ultimate goal is to say um, everyone can be treated on demand because 
even for things like diabetes that we like to compare the disease to because it's chronic and requires maintenance, there are people with diabetes who can't get treatment on demand. There are people with HIV who can't get treatment on demand. We, we, the system is not perfect, but the degree to the degree that the system can function, our ultimate goal has to be, can we be, can the people who need this treatment and recovery support services um, obtain it with the ease that they could obtain anything else that the public health system has to offer? I think really that's our, our we're, ultimate goal. We're a long way from that. Yeah. There's still a yeah. tremendous amount of fear and stigma, even within, you know, we talk about within the medical community that on the surface is saying, oh, you know, look at all this great stuff we're doing for addiction and warm handoff programs. And there are a lot of great progressive stuff going on. But internally, within the medical system, towards our own, and I've felt this and Bill has felt this, a tremendous amount. If you're a physician, a nurse, a PA, you have a substance use disorder. You are, you know, <laughs> you you're an outsider. You are a you are sick. You're a liability. You're high risk. And I always argue that you know the those individuals that get into recovery and have a strong recovery and are connected are such an asset. You know, and can bring so much knowledge and experience, lived experience. Um, to treating this population, but frequently you're put on the outside. You know, you're a danger to society. Um, and that's like, it's, I always say, like, how are we going to change the narrative, break down stigma, um, change what we're doing if within, that's how we treat our own, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think part of it is... Hmm. Uh, I'm not I'm not a medical professional, but I and I think you see that you probably see that in in many professions. It, it, it's weird, you know. From you know, you you had me on to talk about policy, so that's where I'm gonna yeah <laughs> coming back to it, it's when I started in this when no one was listening, we kind of had a uh, you know our 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 elevator pitch our our go to was oh think of someone with diabetes, uh, uh, someone with substance abuse not needs a lifetime of not necessarily I don't know if you want to call it care but but um, support, maintenance, whatever you, you know, whatever term of art you'd like to use, um, or hypertension. Um, we, so that was a great hook to make people understand the complexities of the clinical side. Now that we've got people listening, uh, I, I'm not so sure that that's an analogy we want to stick with because it's a very unique disease. Uh, it has a social side that diabetes doesn't. Uh, like you said, someone could be in the, your profession and they could be a pariah on the surface. It may be okay, but otherwise the, you know, there's, there's whispering, there's, there's finger pointing, there's suspicion, there's fear. Um, that doesn't exist for a diabetic. That doesn't exist for someone with hypertension. Uh, and the second part is if you think back to me talking about a life in the community and for everyone and recovery support services, if you're a diabetic, I'm not saying it's easy to get care in this country, but uh, odds are good you don't have to worry about, um, you know, uh, a criminal a criminal record, you know, <laughs> or or you don't have to worry about, you know, if you've just completed treatment, where am I going to live is not the question you're asking. It's what am I going to, how am I going to change this diet, you know? Well, uh, you know, uh, maintaining yeah, the diet, different. maintaining a place to live, your odds are good. It's not going to be ridiculously difficult to find a job because you're a diabetic. 
(laughs) So, so it's, uh, we kind of, you know, need to, now that we've got everybody's ear in terms of understanding the clinical complexities of addiction, we need to start bringing in those social aspects. It is the only disease I know of that carries with it a, maybe HIV is the other, uh, a social, um, you don't just have to fight the disease at a physical and psychological level. You have to fight it yeah. at a social level. Sure, social, and, spiritual, behavioral, psychological. Right. I mean, it touches every aspect, right. which there are some diseases. I, I'm not sure that and, um, you know, that other diseases touch on that. It's, I always say, I think it's one of the most complex, challenging diseases to treat. I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and not only, you know, and if I could talk some more about policy, you know, when we talk about treatment, you know, like, okay, let's say we're, we're much further along with policy than uh, we ever were for medication assisted treatment and people praise buprenorphine, um, uh, methadone, Vivitrol, mm-hmm. and we praise them and say, look how far we've come. Okay. So that's three medications <laughs> and only for opioids. So if your problem is stimulants, there's mm-hmm. zero and three. Okay. Three medications compared to diabetes or, you know, mm. other, that's nothing. Now you say <laughs> we've come a long way and we have, but I, I don't know if you were watching the Pennsylvania leg- legislature recently I, yes, I, I, and I'm, saw I'm SB six, seven, five. Yes. I'm tracking. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it's just amazing to me. We've we've come a long way. There's a lot of science and evidence-based research. And still, you know, while federally we're trying to deregulate buprenorphine, you know, and improve access to this drug, which we know, you know, decreases morbidity and mortality. And then we have something like that going on in, in Pennsylvania, where right. they're trying to put up more, you know, let's charge you a fee, let's you know, we do have a waiver program, you know, an ex waiver program to allow you to prescribe. We're going to add some other stuff here because we don't trust the federal government. And, and it's, it's just so um, shocking to me, you know, yeah. That, yeah. that that goes on. Yeah. And there's let, let's be honest, those 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 three um, medications, those three, uh, you know, uh, the companies that make them. Um, you know, they're in competition with each other, even though they're really not the same thing. You know, the, 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 the formulation and the, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the pharmacology behind them, you know, uh, uh, buprenorphine and Vivitrol are, you know, work in two totally different ways. But, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a big market for it now, and they're um, not Congress and, 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 the, and the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmacists and McKesson and the distributors are, are realizing that. And, um, you know, but it's still not, um, you know, maybe, maybe there are things in development I don't know about, but I'm still not seeing anyone trying to build a better mousetrap for say stimulants or, um, you know, I remember when, uh, during the anti-tobacco days of the nineties, how, you know, the patch was, all the rage and uh um we're still not we're still not quite there yet uh and what happened in pennsylvania i (laughs) head scratcher your your mind's boggled too (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely what what do you think about harm reduction because i think that's one area that is kind of left out you know there's prevention there's 
treatment, you know, we are working on recovery, peer support. But I mean, if we're going to be honest, people do use drugs mm-hmm. and, um, you know, helping them use them safely to lower risks, especially in an age where we have illicit, you know, opiates that the, you know, the room for error, the margin for error is very, very small. And so things like, you know, clean syringes and fentanyl test strips and some of these things that are still, at least in this state, considered drug paraphernalia um, can can really help, you know, and and especially you were talking about HIV and hepatitis C and hepatitis A. I mean, yeah. Um, we we know we have evidence, you know, that those things work. Yeah, and the key we are still is, criminalizing yeah. them. For me, the key word, like you said, is evidence. And even um harm reduction has can have a lot of different uh, negative connotations. No, I was gonna say <laughs> definitions. I mean, you ask one person harm reduction. Uh, you'll get a different answer than another person. And I, I've been to harm reduction conferences. Uh, the Harm Reduction Coalition, a, a leading um, association in that space. Um, uh, one of their advocates, Daniel Raymond, a uh, very good friend of mine, and and, and we, we work frequently together. Uh, the you know you start with something like syringe exchange. Starting there, the data is undeniable. Uh, you it, it's just undeniable. And and I'm a data. Maybe starting maybe because when I started work, I talked about you know neuroscience and uh, and just my love for science. So um, you know the economist William, uh, I think it was William Denning, said, uh, "In God we trust. All others bring data." <laughs> so um, you know, the data for syringe exchange is 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 clearly undeniable. The safe injection sites I find a fascinating. Uh, policy argument. Besides being someone who who advocates for certain policies, I'm also a student of of politics and policy. And we see what's going on in Philadelphia with with a fight with the federal government over opening that. Um, I see um, some data coming out of Canada. I know there are safe injection sites in, I believe, I know there's one in there are a few. Uh, I know Vancouver. I know Toronto. Um, yeah, Toronto so, has a few. Toronto. So I know there's a few and. Um, from, for the most part, the data I've seen is good. Um, I think there were some concerns last year when people went into a safe injection site in Ottawa and overdosed anyway. And I'm not saying that there's anything as a, such as a perfect system. I'm not saying that discourages me. I'm just saying that it, it kind of gave ammunition to people who might be mm-hmm. on, the, on the other side. Uh, it, it wasn't the best headline. Um, it's, it's still fascinating, though, that you've got thousands of overdoses, no deaths, but then you get one death that wasn't there was still circumstantial, but we're going to point that one out. I once heard a journalist say, "We don't write stories about the planes that land." Right. <laughs> That's true. You know, it, it's uh, it, it, you know, it's uh, so if it bleeds, it leads. And um, the, the yeah, that that's absolutely true. So I'm I'm looking at the data from Canada. Uh, the other two countries we see a lot of data from on, on harm reduction. I believe there's a, an offsited um, article from uh, or system in Portugal and Switzerland. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I, there's a lot of data cited from those countries. I have to be completely honest with you. Um, I'm not dismissive of those studies, but I take them with a very big grain of salt because those countries have different healthcare systems and different criminal justice systems than we do. And it's not it's not an apples to apples comparison. Um, in Portugal, Switzerland, for example, once they deem substance use disorders worthy of treatment or care, 
that's it. That's all she wrote. The whole nation goes along and you're on the rolls. You're in a socialized democracy where access to treatment's available. That's not how it works here, <laughs> um, you know, uh, for better or for worse. So I think that the information we gain from Switzerland and Portugal can be valuable. But when I see people say, oh, well, it worked there. Let's try it here. I think there's a few steps in between that we have to account for. Um, so I do think I, harm reduction is um, is gaining a lot of support, um, but there's always going to be resistance to it. Uh, even I can, there are policymakers I could show the data on syringe exchange to Live Long Day, and it, they're just not going to buy it. Um, and unfortunately, you know it as well as I do. I remember in 2006 during the Obama presidency, when the um, uh, uh, Democrats took the House, one of the first things Speaker Pelosi did was reinstitute what had been a ban. She, there had been a ban on federal funds for syringe exchange programs. She lifted that. Um, the House went back four years later, and they put it back in place. So, <laughs> you know, um, well, welcome to my world. So um, I do think there is a place for harm reduction. I think one thing that handicaps it is, um, can we agree on that one definition? Can we agree on, you know, let's say, uh, let's say person A supports harm reduction uh, and they support syringe exchange and fentanyl test strips, but they'll stop short of, say, safe mm -hmm. injection sites. Uh, are they a harm reduction advocate or no? It's, it's, it's a That's tough That's the question. problem. The definition is, is vague and, and, and but, it's all, and it's all harm reduction, right? right. Like, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're trying but to. But it's the same problem we face with treatment. And, you know, mm -hmm. you put in a piece of legislation, quote, treatment. Oh my God, what does that mean? Yeah, we have inpatient, nothing. we have outpatient, we have intensive outpatient, we have MAT, we have, um, you know, uh, co-occurring, you know, the, the, there's no end to what a patient may need. And I think what we all agree on is let the patient and their care team dictate the care they get. But, you know, it's a term like even for a diabetic, I know we're back to that diabetes uh, comparison. Here's one where it does fit. Um, first of all, you've got type one and type two. So right away, you're talking about different types of treatment. Uh, are you insulin dependent? In addition to the insulin, are you taking any drugs like um, uh, glucophage? Are you um, taking any uh, blood pressure medications? Some people may need the whole slew. Some people, do you need to see an endocrinologist or you just need to check your sugar daily? Mm -hmm. There's any number it's of ways. A disease. It's, a it's a disease. It's a disease and, and they're human and there's, yeah. And the same goes for treatment. But if you say to the average man on the street, hey, what's treatment? Oh, well, 28 days, right? Because yeah. that's what Sandra which Bullock is, did. You know, which, so. which is absurd in itself. Right. Of right? course. It's so we, arbitrary. We, like. There's no science behind the 28 days. No science has ever shown anything less than a 90-day inpatient stay to be. Yeah, we know. 28 it's what days we're willing is, to pay for. Right. It's, know, what it, it, it's the old uh, insurance model of a week of detox two weeks of treatment, a week of re-entry, what have you. Um, now you have some insurance company saying, yeah, we'll pay for treatment. And they do two days of detox and good luck, which is more dangerous than yeah. 
<laughs> you know, you know where I'm going with this. So yeah, so you know, even the, so, defining the word treatment, defining the word prevention, defining the word um, uh, harm reduction, the phrase harm reduction. We really do have a long way to go. I think in the when the history is written, if in 50 years we look back at a, at a really big victory, um, you know, the first five years, um, you know, 2013 to 2018. And when we talk about the civil rights movement, we talk about the 60s. In reality, the civil rights movement started in 1865, <laughs> you know, for, for, that, for that full push for equality. But all we talk about is the end, you know, that, that brought us to. And we're still, not, <laughs> we're still not there. We're still fighting the civil rights movement, you know, for a variety of classes. So um, everyone likes to talk about, you know, the part that took us over the finish line. We're very much still at the starting line, um, you know, uh, very much still at the starting line. And I know Congress um, likes to think that we've made great advances and we have. Um, but I think what we're witnessing is uh, the door just um, we're still in an area where the door is just creaking open just a little bit. And uh, we've, we've got a ways to go before we can uh, send the masses finally. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, so, so what what can regular citizens like Sean and I and our, and our listeners, like what can we do that can start influencing policy and starting to change this on, on the ground end, which ultimately helps people who influence policy at your level? Right. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's interesting. I was just talking about this last week to, to, to people who were in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., um, People like me, we do this for a living and we say, um, you know, oh, this piece of legislation, you know, needs to include this, this and this or, you know, this subsection should go here or this program needs to re reauthorize there. Um, I understand that could get mundane and boring. The, the job of the citizen advocate um, is yeah. to keep pressure, keep, keep it present Keep it part of the national conversation, because like I said before, you know, the Congress is a reflection of Congress is a reflection of the citizen. Whatever people are talking about, Congress is going to talk about. Um, if everyone wants to talk about the wall, turn on C-SPAN and there you got people in the well of Congress talking about the wall. People want to talk about, you know, uh, the nuclear Iran deal and you call the, some office gets 100 calls. You'll turn on C-SPAN and people will be talking about the Iran nuclear year. Keep it in the conversation. Um, that's how you get members of Congress and the Senate and the White House to take note. Um, there's a reason in 2016 every candidate talked about this issue. There's a reason legislation is being written because it is omnipresent. It is in the news. People are talking about it. Um, you don't have to go to Washington to be an advocate. Uh Columns in your local newspaper, letters to the editor, stories on the local news, uh, talking to local high schools. Um, I do firmly believe in the power of the community still. I still do believe that politics is local, despite what you'll hear on the news and all this focus on Washington. Um, I once had someone on Capitol Hill in my young days as, a, as an advocate, uh, after I was done talking to him, say, you know... You've convinced me, but what I need is someone from your state to get in here and tell me because one of them is worth ten of you. Um, it's 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 keeping the conversation going and the occasional call, the occasional email, uh, the occasional tweet. 
Um, but it is out of sight. And when it comes to policy, out of sight is truly out of mind. Um, if people aren't talking about it, uh, Congress isn't working on it. A lot of, I know a lot of people like to think that the news reports on what Congress does. Uh, no, it goes the other way. Congress reacts, Congress reacts to what the news reports. Uh, so, um, you know, using, using the media, using social media, um, still a very important tool because, um, if we stop having this conversation, that's the day that policymakers stop paying attention. I, th- I think the, the conversation is there. Like you said, it's omnipresent. People are dying, but the policy is just not, you know, it, it's not getting there and it's not getting the job done. So what, like, what's the next step, right? Okay. You're emailing, you're on social media. We're talking about it. It's, it, I mean, look at the news all day, every day. There's there's arrests, there's, you know, I mean. The next step is the ballot box, you know. it's I hate to sound cliche or or sum it up so easily, but I've seen people with with bumper stickers saying, I'm in recovery and I vote, Um, (laughs) you know, and that's great. Uh, You you should. Uh, The issue is I I see two – uh, the question is one is, are there enough to, to make that difference? And the other is, I think we're great at having this conversation. Um, my question is, how many of your colleagues who are not in recovery having this conversation? I know for a fact, when I was in college during the AIDS scare, uh, I didn't have HIV, but we were talking about it. Um, you know, I may not have been... Uh, you know, in the 80s or early 90s, people who used to think it was only a disease that gay people could get, um, even if they weren't gay, they were talking about it. Um, Ebola, even if you didn't work in a setting where you could have gotten it, well, you know, people were talking about it. Are people who are not in recovery, are they engaged enough? That would be my question to you. That's a, that's a great question because I'm sitting here thinking about even my colleagues that are physicians right they're not talking about this like i'm in recovery i'm surrounded by it i do it every day you know i work for a public policy organization now um and i hear it and i live it right but they're but they're not and their and their lives aren't really touched and even the ones where their lives are touched unless it's really close or it was something extreme an overdose death and You're just, oh, my uncle's got a problem with alcohol. They're not right. thinking about it. They're not worried about his program. Going back to Speaker Pelosi, um, she, when she was talking about syringe exchange, when she was first elected in the 80s, she said, uh, you know, in her first moment on the floor, like kind of her introduction to Washington, uh, which was highly anticipated because of her family history, you know, she said, you know, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do blah and blah and the last thing she said and she said we're gonna find a cure for aids and this was 1986 maybe and she came off and someone many people said to her what are you what are you talking about are you did you just say that on did you just say the word aids on on the floor of congress she's like yeah they're like why would you say something like that and she said because I want to find a cure for AIDS. <laughs> you know, it's, it, where are the people who, you know, you know, and, and, and we have those, we're starting to find those members of Congress 
uh, but we, we need more. Uh, and um, we are fighting a hundred years. We're not just fighting a hundred years of stigma. We're fighting. This is a disease that's been around since the dawn of time. As I like to say, you show me an ancient civilization and like, you know, the Egyptians found a way to brew beer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the the, uh, stigma is woven. It's woven into the culture. Right. You find you go back 7,000 years in the Mesopotamians and they found a way to make wine and uh, and there's a reason for it. So uh, we're not just fighting uh, a, a few hundred years of, 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 of history in our own nation. Uh, and people don't even, you know, we talk about prohibition. People don't realize even that prohibition was a reaction to substance abuse. If you look at the historical documents, the women's temperance movement was not about uh, being being teetotalers or, or or being holy, it was about men being quite violent when they were coming home drunk. That's what spurred, you know. So our 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 history is is loaded with examples of you know people fighting uh, mm-hmm. addiction and then it goes away and they fight and it goes well, away. We continue to repeat it. Right. The cycle just we repeat it over and over. I, we, uh, like, why are why are we learning? Wasn't it repeating the cycle over and over? <laughs> I've always said there's a recovery is a great metaphor for policy, <laughs> you know, it's uh, but yeah, no, we do. But, um, you know, the only other alternative is to uh, is to not. And that's that's not an alternative for us. So, well, and facing it and, and hearing the truth. And like you said, with Pelosi and being open and honest with the reality of our situation instead yeah. of sweeping it all under the rug. Um, one question I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the role of, of district attorneys, you know, in all of this, like there's um, a lot of progressive, progressive district attorneys out there that are making some great changes within the criminal justice system and looking at substance disorders in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think about, you know, their role and, you know, like Tiffany Capone and Larry Krasner oh, right. here in Philly, yeah. you know, some of these, um, you know, real progressive. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, and uh, the we, I, I hope we've we've learned our lesson from the past. I actually, you know, even but even that is not where we need to be just yet. Um, I, 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 you, sh- you asked me what my utopia would be for this situation, and it would be a uh, a situation where law enforcement is never involved in the first place. Like if someone is. Uh, is uh, revived by naloxone, you know, first responder, law enforcement's already involved, you know, um, you know, can we find a way to have a, oh, I don't know, overdose response core or something, you know, you know, can we find a way to keep criminal justice out of it completely? Mm -hmm. But the progress has been great. It really has. The uh, let's not lose sight of the fact though, that in recent years, I have noticed a bit of a slip in federal policy that's inching or creeping back towards supply side. You and I both know or, that it's, it should be about demand reduction. It should be about prevention and harm reduction and treatment. And if you look at um, the White House and their strategies, um, there's continues to be more and more emphasis on seizures, border patrol. That's not to say they don't advocate for treatment. They do. 
but your where are your priorities? Where are you going to invest the most? What's your rhetoric going to be? Um, I was in Atlanta when President Trump addressed the um, opioid prescription summit, and um, he was quite effusive in his praise for drug sniffing dogs at the border, uh, which I'm sure do a, a tremendous job. Um, I have to note that they got several minutes of praise uh, thrown their way by the president, yet uh, addiction treatment counselors, addiction psychiatrists, and um, you know, addiction docs, addiction nurses, social workers, peers, um, they got absolutely no adulation or applause from from the president. So um, that kind of, you know, there are still some states and some people at the federal level who still want to go that supply side route. And I'm glad to see the progress being made uh, by some local AGs and, and DAs. But um, uh, I don't. We have a ways to go. Yeah, I think we got a ways to go. Yeah, Bill and I were recently at a conference at uh, the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. It was called Addicted to the War on Drugs. There mm -hmm. are a lot of very progressive minds there, and Krasner was there, and somebody mm -hmm. from the Bronx Defender's Office. And they had and an assistant to McSwain, you know, the U.S. attorney. And as soon as she spoke, you know, she prefaced it with, I'm, my views represent the office that I'm here representing. And you can see the issue right away. Very right. focused on supply, very flashy headlines, a big bus, um, nothing to really address the underlying issues. You know, so we definitely have a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Andrew, this was great. I mean, we could talk for hours. I think <laughs> there's. I have a long list of other topics, and maybe we'll have you come Part back two. at some point. Fine with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Let's wrap it up. Uh, Bill, did you have any parting words or? No, thank you so much. No. I think this was incredibly valuable. I, mean, I learned a lot. and uh, I think our listeners will benefit greatly yeah. from the I, insider scoop. Absolutely. And just lastly, how can people reach you? Um, uh, on Twitter, my hashtag is uh, SlingshotDC. And my website is uh, SlingshotSolutions.net. Great. Thank you so much again. This was uh, fantastic. Very insightful. Thank you. I look forward to speaking with you soon. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIRpodcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.